continuing in our series, How to Be a Good, and you may have guessed from the song, today's topic is how to be a good neighbor. We all want good neighbors. When a for sale sign goes up in a neighborhood, all the neighbors get a little curious, maybe even a little anxious, about who will purchase the home and move in. This past summer, my family and I purchased a home just five blocks from where we were renting. And because it was so close by, I often biked or walked by the new house before we moved in. One day, soon after the sold sign went in front of the property, I overheard the neighbors discussing who had purchased the property. I hear they have kids, one posited. I hear they live nearby. The other said, and I wanted to chime in. I hear they're a wonderful family and you're going to be so glad they moved in. But I just kept pedaling, chuckling at their curiosity. Now, seven weeks later, there's a for sale sign on the house across from my street. And I'm eager to know who's going to be living near me. Who we live near matters. We've all heard of horrible neighbor stories. Likewise, I know people who refuse to move from their houses, even though it would make sense for them financially, because they like their neighbors so much. You can't choose your neighbors, they defend. So who's the ideal neighbor? Maybe you'd say Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Any Mr. Rogers fans out there, does this date me? Um, His neighborhood would be pretty idyllic, with his gentle, calm demeanor, eliciting peace and goodness. Maybe you'd prefer prefer Tim the Toolman's neighbor from Home Improvement, the wise sage who offers sound advice but who stays behind the fence where he belongs. In contrast to the the stay-behind-the-fence neighbor, you've got the ultra-invasive, always-walking-in-on-you neighbor, and that would be Kramer from Seinfeld. Despite his friendship with Jerry, Kramer was a horrible neighbor, always barging in on Jerry unexpectedly, borrowing his stuff and ruining it, throwing it late night parties, keeping Jerry awake. Now, some of you are starting to feel like this talk is going to be irrelevant. You don't know your neighbors at all, and you can't see yourself doing anything more than just waving at them as you're both coming and going. Let me reassure you, when I say neighbor, that can include those you live near, But it can also mean simply the ones in proximity to us or the ones we spend time with. In a few moments, we're gonna look at the verse, love your neighbor as yourself. And the word neighbor used there is not the word used to describe people who live closest to you. It's a word that means more the community you're a part of. And for a stay-at-home mom or a retired person who likes gardening, that may mean your literal neighbors. But for the traveling business executive and for many others today, the word neighbor might need to be understood as those whose lives you intersect with on a regular basis rather than your address. If you're a young professional working 70 hours a week and renting an apartment, you're probably not going to know your neighbors. If you're a businessman who travels three out of four weeks of the year, the ones in proximity to you are not your literal neighbors but your work colleagues with whom you travel and share meals. If you're a student athlete, the ones in proximity to you might be your teammates. You're spending a lot of time together. Or as a parent to those other parents of kids in the stands. In addition, every neighborhood has its own culture. When Andy and I lived in an apartment building in the city of Vancouver, anonymity was the name of the game. You weren't even supposed to look at one another in the hallway. People would think it was creepy if you did. 
If that's the social culture you live in, you may also want to apply what we say about neighbor today to your work colleagues or classmates, book club or gym. Now, it may surprise you to learn that the Bible has some decent input on how to be a good neighbor. Here's one piece of advice it gives for all you non-morning people from the book of Proverbs. If anyone loudly blesses a neighbor in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. <laughs> Seriously, the Bible says that. Some of you may have seen this dog video about morning people versus non-morning people. Look at that guy. <laughs> I feel like I used to be a morning person, and now with kids, that's me every morning. <laughs> uh, and you thought the Bible was archaic and irrelevant. Here's another one. Do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Ever seen how quickly one instance of stretching the truth can cause an entire block or office to be mad at someone for some exaggerated offense? Not cool, the Bible says. The Bible actually has a fair bit of things to say about being a good neighbor, and we're going to walk through them this morning. I think what we find may be surprising. And for those of you here today who would not consider yourselves followers of Jesus, I want to invite you to listen carefully too, because it may just be that what you hear will clarify some of your perceptions about Christianity. The first point the Bible makes is that in order to be a good neighbor, you should do no harm. Leviticus chapter 19 describes how to treat people in your community, and it's full of some great advice. Advice like, don't rob your neighbors. I sure hope your neighbors aren't stealing from you, but what about letting them know when you see their garage door up late at night and their expensive bikes there free for the taking? Here's another one. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Now true, most of us are probably not plotting a neighborhood fire, but this can be applied more widely. Good neighbors drive slowly through alleys and streets where there are small children. Good neighbors in Minnesota shovel and salt their sidewalk when it's icy. Good neighbors may, if done respectfully and appropriately, post on next door about a creepy guy trying to assault women at night. And one more from Leviticus. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you do not share in their guilt. So should you say something to your neighbor about the fact that you'd like them to pick up their pet waste that's in your yard every day? Or that they're parking their car in front of your house every night and it bothers you? Possibly. People can't fix what they don't know. Give them that chance, the Bible urges. Now I think we'd all agree that don't hurt others policy is pretty basic. But it may still be worth pondering, is there any way in which I might be harming my neighbor, even unintentionally? Or if not harming, simply annoying them? Is there some habit that become, we've become so accustomed to we don't even realize it's irritating or harmful to someone else? As one theologian once said, we are all way more annoying than we thought we are. So gentle reminder for us today to take stock of our habits and see if there's anything that needs to be tweaked based on the rule, do not harm. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It's not just do no harm. It's actually do some good. A little later on in that chapter of Leviticus, we read the words, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus actually quoted this verse when he was asked what the greatest commandment was on one occasion. He said, love God with total devotion and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the basis for our purpose statement at City Church. Love God, love others. And love's focus is not just negative, don't harm. It's positive, do good, help out, look after one another. Again, most people would agree with this. In fact, it's probably what they mean when they say the word community. Now, what's distinctive about this view is that often it's very transactional. So I do this for you and you do this for me. I will take care of your mail and pets while you're on vacation and you will take care of my mail and pets when I'm on vacation. I'll drive the kids to practice this week in the carpool and you'll drive them next week. This works really well in homogenous communities because relationships are pretty reciprocal. We give knowing that at some point in the future we're gonna get something in return. We give knowing it will benefit the entire community when we do so. So when you ensure the door closes behind you in your apartment complex or condo, everyone's security is insured. When you wipe off your weights or equipment at the gym, the whole gym is more hygienic. Thank you very much. This kind of thinking is actually what's behind the verse in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor. For the Jewish people, this meant love those in your Jewish community who need help. Now, this is not to say the Jewish people weren't to love those outside their community. In fact, Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 commands the Jewish people to care for foreigners and immigrants. But my point is that those foreigners were not included in the original understanding of neighbor. Love your neighbor, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene in the first century, meant love your own people, your own tribe. We see this in the tension the Jewish people had with the Samaritans. For hundreds of years, they had both ethnic and religious tension, and it led to hostility, so much so that they avoided one another as much as possible. Much like modern-day Israelis and Palestinians avoid one another's quarters, fearing for their safety, Jews and Samaritans did often not cross onto the other side of the tracks. Now, there's a crazy example of this hostility in Luke 9, 51 to 55. Jesus is traveling with his disciples and he's headed towards Jerusalem, the epicenter of Jewish life. And surprisingly, not so much if you know Jesus, but in his culture, surprisingly, he goes through a Samaritan village. And unsurprisingly, he is not welcomed. Let, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> There's some stuff that happens. And two of his disciples say to him, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them for how they treated us? Jesus turned and rebuked the disciples. And Jesus shows similar acts of kindness to Samaritans in other stories. The woman at the well in John 4, for example. So you can probably guess where this is headed. The Jewish understanding of love your neighbor really meant love people like you, people from your own tribe. And while there's nothing particularly wrong with either of those beliefs, do no harm and love your own people, Jesus doesn't let it rest there. In a very famous incident, the telling of the Good Samaritan story, he redefines neighbor for us. The story is found in Luke 10, 30 to 37. You can follow along on page 1581 in the Pew Bible, or you can follow the words on the screen. The story arises out of an interaction Jesus has with a lawyer, where again he emphasizes this twofold law love God, love neighbor. 
The lawyer asks, and who's my neighbor? Jesus answered, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now just pause. Jesus' audience would have assumed from the setting the traveler is Jewish. He's in Jewish country. They would also have assumed from the phrase, Jerusalem to Jericho, this guy's in trouble. You shouldn't travel this road alone. This is a 17-mile windy desert road descending 3,300 feet, thus a perfect breeding ground, breeding ground for thieves. We have records, actually, of historians who refer to this as the red or the bloody way. So not too smart. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, this also may not have been super hard for Jesus' listeners to imagine. Jerusalem, where priests and their assistants, the Levites, worked, mostly lived in Jericho. So coming away from the temple in a state of ritual purity, perhaps they don't want to become contaminated as ceremonial law prohibited them from touching a corpse. And anyway, who's to say the robbers aren't still lurking around? At this point, Jesus' listeners are expecting a Jewish layman, maybe a local rabbi, to come by and save the day if we're following descending order of social status here. And here, the story takes a shocking turn. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hand of robbers? Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Talk about a mic drop. Boom. Jesus lays it out there and walks away. You see, the point of this story that's so well known is not just to help the person on the road in front of us when they have a need. If that were the point, any old person could have been the hero. Instead, Jesus is trying to broaden the people's perspective on who their neighbor is. That command, love God, love others, includes people outside your community, people you don't normally tend to interact with, even people who've hurt you or who hate you. And we're to love them by meeting tangible needs, cleaning wounds, offering food, providing protection and safe lodging. And with that, Jesus is broadening the call to mean do some good for all, all people, not just your own people. Jesus is raising the bar here. We're to love people we don't naturally have relationship with, maybe even people we've got some bad history with. This is similar to what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. 
Now that's a far cry from picking up the mail for one another, is it not? That involves sacrifice, where when we give, we might not ever receive in return. That involves humility, where our assumptions about other groups of people must be re-examined. And that involves courage, where we're willing to get outside of what's known and comfortable. This applies to people we don't have strong affinity towards, and it applies to people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds. I don't know what your perception is of Christianity and racism, but one scholar called this story one of the most powerful challenges to racism in the Bible. Jesus strongly resisted racism, and his followers are to do the same. We're to love all people, not just the people who are easy to love. It's not enough for a Christian to love those who are like us. In fact, what truly distinguishes a Jesus follower is someone who loves people outside their own affinity group, outside of their own tribe. Maybe some of us here this morning need to hear that. Maybe we've settled for our culture's view of loving our neighbor. Well, we're basically good and kind to people who are like us. We may serve at a nonprofit once in a while or give to hurricane victims to appease our conscience, but really loving others in this way that Jesus is talking about is really just an afterthought. If you're feeling like you wanna take the next step on this, let me give you just two quick ideas. First, Try a one-time experience where you serve in a way you're not accustomed to. You don't have to commit to it in an ongoing way, just try once. This is where the phrase, think global, act local, is really helpful. You may not be able to end world hunger, but you can serve one meal at one shelter to those who need it. And if you have no idea where to begin, you may wanna start by joining other people from City Church as we partner with organizations like Community Emergency Service, or Simpson Housing, or tutoring a Somali adult in English. Second, if adding something to the rhythm of your life seems overwhelming, just look for the people you already interface with who may be marginalized or hurting. Maybe it's something as simple as learning the name of your child's bus driver, or the name of the person who cleans your office. Maybe it's spending time on the field trip with the kid in, the cl in your kid's class who doesn't speak English very well. Maybe it's befriending the coworker who's on the periphery, periphery of the office socially or the transgender person at your school. Margot Starbuck, whom I volunteered with at our church in North Carolina, has written a very readable, humorous, creative book oozing with ideas on how ordinary people can do this in the midst of the chaos of their lives. Building on Mother Teresa's mantra and one of our values at City Church, it's called Small Things with Great Love, Adventures in Loving Your Neighbor. And I highly recommend it to you. If you're looking for small, simple, creative ways to do this, don't worry, the chapters are not really long. They're bite-sized. You can read them in just a couple minutes, have an idea stimulated in your mind and go on your way. Now, some of you today are in a very different place. You don't need to be told to see the person hurting on the road. You see a road full of needy people and you feel overwhelmed by how to care for them. Social media and globalization have made our society more aware of the world's needs than any prior generation. 
Just listening to the news can be paralyzing at all the needs there are. And mobility has added to our sense of awareness of these needs because sometimes these images and statistics are not just names and data. It's our high school classmate in the wake of Irma or a friend who just lost a child. Add to that the fact that none of us are seeking to be just good neighbors. We wanna be good friends and spouses and parents and teammates and employees and citizens. How do we hold this all together? Thanks a lot, Jesus, for broadening the circle of who we're to love. Easy for you to say, you're God. You can love all people at all times. What about us? We're human. And one of the most fundamental aspects of our humanity is that we are finite. We can only be in one place at one time. We have limited energy and capacity. We need sleep. We run out of cash. For those of you more on this end of the spectrum, I so feel your pain. Full disclosure, I've had counselors tell me I need to practice benevolent disinterest in order to be a healthier person. Okay, so <laughs> let me give you two thoughts from Jesus' teaching that I have found really helpful. First, work within the confines of your limitations. Did you notice what the Samaritan man did when he encountered the hurting traveler? Using his olive oil for pain relief and wine for antiseptic, he gave him first aid. This was not uncommon for oil and wine to be used in this way in the first century. He shared some of his clothes. He put him on his donkey. He took him to the inn where he left some money. Apparently, he had good credit. The innkeeper wasn't worried about that. And, wait for it, he continued on his way. He did stop and help the guy in need at great personal sacrifice and cost to himself, but he didn't get derailed. He finished his journey. Now think about that for a moment. He didn't cancel the business meeting waiting for him in town or the family commitment he had, whatever it was, he didn't allow this need to completely overtake what he had planned. He got there a little late with a little less cash, but he was still faithful to those commitments too. For anyone here who can get caught up in others' problems easily, let me say to you, you cannot give what you do not have. You cannot give what you do not have, and it's not pretty when we try. Others around us who are depending on us will suffer, and God doesn't want us to be a good neighbor at the expense of being a good whatever else. Yes, it will take sacrifice. Yes, it will take time. But it need not overtake the other things he's called us to. Some of us here this morning don't have a lot to give. <laughs> We're overextended. We're caring for small children at home or aging adults or friends in difficult places in life and there just aren't a lot of available resources. Maybe in this season, the primary neighbor you need to love is one of your own. And then with whatever oil or wine, clothing or donkey you have left, offered to others in need. But only if you actually have those things. God always works within the confines of our limitations. And second, enlist the help of the community. Our hero didn't try to help the guy alone. Find an innkeeper. Delegate, 
Do your part and pass it off to someone else who has the bandwidth. And this is the wonderful truth behind Jesus' call to love our neighbor. It's not just that he asks us individually to love others. It's that he asks us to do this together as a community, as the church. We're to love others using the gifts and resources represented here. Do you know that the majority of the commands in the Bible are in the plural form? You love one another. You serve one another. You help one another. You carry one another's burdens. I am so a northerner at heart, but I love the southern phrase, y'all, for this reason. When we're called to love our brothers and sisters in Minneapolis, it's y'all. Y'all in City Church feed the poor. Y'all in City Church meet the needs of the city. And not just City Church, other churches. Some of us here won't be able to make it on some occasions, and other times we will, but we do this together, each doing our part. No matter how hard we try or how well we work together, we cannot fully be the neighbors our world needs. We are limited. We get tired. We lose interest. We become self-absorbed. We can't fully restore this broken world. That will only happen as we've sung already today when Jesus comes again to this earth. Jesus who was in fact the best neighbor the world has ever known. Jesus who John 1:14 says took on flesh and moved into our neighborhood to show us the good life. Jesus the ultra good Samaritan who came to our town, meeting us on the side of the road, giving us food and wine, his body and blood, dying our death so we may truly experience life and love. As followers of this Jesus, may we seek to love our neighbors as he has loved us. Let's pray. Oh God, we initially feel so overwhelmed by this call. Love everyone always, everywhere. <laughs> but you say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and you do not ask us something that we cannot do. By the power of your Holy Spirit who was alive and at work in your son Jesus and who is alive and at work in each one of us individually and in this community, would you enable us to love those around us that they may see you for who you are and experience life in all its fullness. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.